Okay, hello, and welcome to the latest episode of EdTech Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. I'm glad you found us. Today, I'm really looking forward to a conversation with Mylena Albright. Mylena, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you today, Kevin? Good. Uh, let me ask you, where are you clicking in from these days? Are you are still remote or are you back into the, uh, the Dallas HQ? Um, so actually, I am uh, still remote, um, working here in Dallas from home. Um, I have been kind of testing the waters going into the office maybe one day out of the week, um, but I don't think we'll make that transition until maybe July. Okay. All right. But there is there is a, uh, a light at the end of the tunnel there somehow. There is. Depending on how you look at it, some people like working from home. That's true. That's true. And we, and we can get into uh, the aspects of that when it comes to remote learning, too, that maybe some of these things will, will stick around, right, once, once we get past the madness. But let's get right into it. Um, AT&T announcing some really big news last month. Uh, with some really big numbers and some some really kind of heady goals. Maybe you can uh, break it down for us a little bit. Yeah, so I'm happy to talk about it. So um, we recently announced a $2 billion three-year commitment that will help us address uh, the digital divide, specifically the homework gap. Um, and I'm, I'm really proud to say that these, these commitments build on um, some very strong commitments from last year, and, and we'll talk about it probably more during the interview. But you know, we started to make a pivot last year once COVID really started to impact um, education back in March of 2020. But with this two billion two billion dollar commitment, I mean, we understood that by the end of last year, um, the digital divide and homework gap were issues that were going to have to be dealt with. I mean, regardless of when students went back to school, I mean the homework gap was going to continue to be an issue because students would leave school, go home, and not have proper access. So, um, so with this $2 billion commitment, um, it takes into account products and services that we've already had in place. So for example, access from AT&T, which is our low-cost broadband offering. We introduced that about five years ago. Um, it makes internet more affordable to customers who qualify. So um, depending on the speeds, um, the maximum speed available at your address, it'll be about $10 a month for up to 25 megabytes per second. And then another uh, product that we were already, or another um, offering that we had was our education offer. Um, we continue to offer discounted solutions to more than 135,000 public and private K through 12 schools, colleges, and universities. And so these offers help keep students and teachers connected in a, in a more of a one-on-one -on -one learning model to help them transform um, education uh, beyond just reopening schools. Um, so in addition to that, we also announced our AT&T Connected Learning Program. And so the Connected Learning Program is um, a, a several different offerings that we will make available that help to break down affordability and accessibility barriers um, to connectivity. Um, and I, I can go through each of those programs now, if you would like, or if I, I don't know if you want, want to um, just take some time to ask some additional questions, but, but I can go with all of it if you would yeah, like. Yeah, you, you've, you've got all the details. I guess yes. the, the one uh, thing that intrigues me um, is the idea of digital equity and the, the concepts surrounding that have been around for, for a long time, right? I mean, if you went to ISTE or you, you go to EdTech trade shows, uh, and you would listen to keynotes about how to solve this problem. It was always very kind of conceptual, right? It was theoretical almost. And then March 13th, 2020, every school gets shut down. Every, you know, not every kid gets handed a device to go home and do work. 
And I think it really became a stark reality to not only uh, parents, but students and from the corporate side. And then as a result, and to not only AT&T's credit, but to the industry in general, there was a pretty fast moving response. I mentioned triage. I mean, it's those first few weeks and months, um, I think the industry deserves credit for responding. Talk a little bit about how that shift from your position from something which was an issue, obviously, and AT&T was ahead of the game, you know, and was already taking steps, but talk about that acceleration and what, what that meant from a corporate perspective. Yeah, so going back, um, I'll take it back even maybe a month um, earlier than that. And, you know, I give full credit to, um, you know, my boss, Charlene Lake, who manages our corporate social responsibility team, but also my immediate team, because, you know, we knew that this pandemic was happening. We didn't have the, the you know, benefit of the knowledge we have now. We figured schools may start to close, maybe a few here, a few there. We didn't, we had no concept of the magnitude, but we had started to think about the fact that schools may be closing. And so how could we help to continue serving the underrepresented, underserved students that we were already focused on? So um, once it became obvious of how dire the issue was, I mean, we literally pivoted all of our funding and how we looked at our programming. Literally, I mean, it was like overnight, Kevin. I mean, because we knew that we had to get to these students and to help them get connected the best way we, we could. So we immediately put together a $10 million, what we called our digital, digital um, DLFC, Digital Learning Family Connections Fund. Um, and so through that fund, we started to um, support organizations like Khan Academy, that had resources that needed some extra funding to allow them to just address the magnitude of students that needed that support. So um, throughout you know, our support of that program, I mean, I believe we supported over 60 organizations and reached, I think it was about 163, I'm sorry, 196 million students, parents, and educators wow. through that program. Um, but, but it was necessary because we knew we didn't have any time you know, to, to think about it for a long time. And really for, for the first time, and I mean, we, we like to think that as, as corporations, when everybody's on the same page, we're all aligned going the same way. And, you know, theoretically we, we were, um, but this was the first time that every person in the company, all of the resources were pointed at the fact that as a telecommunications company, we really had to be focused on what we could do to help with um, distance learning at that point. So we really did make a huge pivot um, with that. You know, we, we didn't get additional dollars. Um, your, your budget is your budget. And we just had to make some hard decisions to do the best that we could do for the students that we knew we needed, needed to serve. So we, we were still serving the same groups of students, but just in a very different way. Yeah. And then getting to your, your point about ISTE, um, it, it's ironic. The, I think the last conference I attended before COVID was like the ISTE conference in 2019. And, you know, we, we talked a lot about, you know, how we handle distance learning. Oh, we don't have the money for the resources. We don't have the money for the connectivity. And it's like, boom, you have a, a crisis and you, you just make it happen. You make it happen the best way that you can. And probably the best thing to come out of such a just dire and, and, and negative situation of, of COVID and the pandemic 
is the fact that, you know, within a year, we have totally transformed what education is going to look like moving forward, how students learn, this whole hybrid environment. Nobody thought about a hybrid environment before we got into last year. So, I mean, that, that's how we had to make make the pivot, but I, but I think it's all in a very positive way. Yeah, and, um, you know, the past few weeks of my conversations just keep getting better and better. I mean, um, now that, you know, things seem to be stabilized and looking at back to school next fall, that um, it would be as normal as, as possible, but with the intention of keeping some of these hybrid platforms in place, right? And then at the same time, I mean, I guess the only, um, the only entity who can out uh, give money to $2 billion is maybe $7 billion from the FCC, which is the number that is being thrown around to again, uh, encourage the reality of getting every kid connected, which um, does now, if you asked me six months ago, I would have been like, no way, right? This is the same thing we've been talking about for 10 years. There's always gonna be an underserved uh, portion. Um, now, I don't know, I, my, my glass is, is increasingly half full. Talk a little bit about your uh, relationship with the FCC. I know and what I've been reading is that there has been great conversations between industry as well as the government in terms of making these implementations possible. Is that a, is that a, a new dynamic or is it just kind of lay that out a little bit? No. Um, so our team um, is not necessarily responsible for the relationship with the FCC, but our, um, our, our other colleagues within external and legislative affairs, where, where corporate social responsibility sits, um, our colleagues have an ongoing relationship with, with the FCC. So this is definitely not, not a new um, topic. It's something that you know we have talked to them about, advocated for, but we always knew that rules needed to be put in place and Congress needed to act um, because it, this isn't a, you know, a, a, a one size fits all solution. I mean, we really need to get government and industry and um, nonprofits that we, we have to get everyone at the table to make this work. So, you know, the, the conversation that we've been having across the board is that it, it's time for Congress to adopt a long-term federally funded broadband benefit program. Um, so we, we've seen some of that start to happen. The, the dollars that we've seen so far have been, you know, short term. We, we, we still don't have a long-term solution, but, you know, that longer-term solution, we, we, you know, think the FCC would manage that and administer it to provide low-income individuals with enhanced financial support for broadband, you know, long after this pandemic ends. So we have to make sure that um, you know, it's, it's a program that, you know, it works, it has staying power, um, it has to have a predictable, dependable and consistent funding mechanism. And I mean, that requires that it be codified and funded by Congress. And there has to be a mandatory directed spending, you know, as other entitlement programs are. So rather than being subjected to kind of this annual vague discretionary appropriations process, you really have something in place that will, um, allow us to have you know, a, a more viable solution. Um, there was a letter that we co-signed with Verizon, T-Mobile, and more than 40 other interested parties that lays out that vision. And that's really to make connectivity affordable and accessible uh, for all families. So is, is that, and 
is it necessary for that to be an extension of what I think of as a pretty successful government program, which is E-rate, right? I mean, so E-rate got the pipes into the school buildings themselves, but what this pandemic has shown is that it's not good enough just to have it into the school. It has to be from the school into everyone's home. And that, again, another phrase, anytime, anywhere, uh, mm -hmm. learning sort of apparatus. So is this something that could build on the E-rate program or is this something that is completely new? Talk about how you, you, you see that playing out. Yeah, I, I think E-rate in and of itself, I mean, E-rate has done great things to make sure that um, there is a, a, a mechanism to make um, make broadband accessible, make wireless accessible to schools, colleges, and universities. But there, there still needs to be a, another look at how um, E-rate is, um, is rolled out. Um, we did see some changes to E-rate because E-rate was very strict. Um, and then once the pandemic happened, um, the FCC did relax some of those rules to allow um, to allow uh, companies like AT&T to um, have a bit more leniency and being able to provide you know, resources or um, things of value to schools that specifically allowed them to serve students um, through distance learning. But I think it's beyond just E-rate. It has to also, um, we have to identify where broadband is unavailable. I mean, and we have to do that with geographic precision. So we have to work with the FCC to get to a broadband map that, you know, realistically shows us where broadband is unavailable. Um, we have to modernize uh, the FCC's Lifeline program. I mean, Lifeline is a program that has traditionally um, applied to uh, uh, landline telephone service, but we need to modernize Lifeline to um, include broadband. Um, we, we just need to continue to incentivize private investment in wired and wireless solutions, but without being overly prescriptive without just, you know, overly regulating the issue. I mean, mm. if you look back at, you know, how this issue has, um, has, you know, laid out over the year, um, the, the issue was more so getting students, you know, access, you know, so that, you know, if it, if it's available in their area, how do we get it to their home? Um, but the, the issue was never, oh, you know, the internet is not working. The internet is broken. The internet still worked. Broadband still worked. It's just a matter of getting to um, a, a relationship amongst all the parties that I mentioned that we get to a solution that helps to work for the people that it matters to most. Um, and it, it's interesting, you really don't understand the issue of um, digital divide or homework gap until you're sitting in a house where you can't get internet at the time that you need it most, especially if it's your kids needing to do you know, do their schoolwork. Um, so I think that's the piece that I, maybe if we were all, you know, in the dark without broadband for a period of time, that would help people understand why it's so urgent that we get this issue, get this issue resolved. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's the stark reality I was mentioning from last year where I think there were districts and schools and teachers who didn't really have an understanding of what the, the home environment was, where there was a lack of, of, of access. Um, so, one of the complications of this is, I mean, we're talking about everything at, at the federal level. Um, the way the U.S. public education system is set up is with 15,000 plus different school districts who have different purchasing powers, uh, different power dynamics with their school boards, right? And now hopefully because of this, there's no longer going to be an argument that it's too expensive or it's a luxury and that it's obviously a necessity. But how, um, 
do you see these initiatives working out when you have that kind of complex system of different organizations? Yeah, so I think that's where, you know, especially, you know, for a company like AT&T, I mean, there, there are different arms of the company that interact with the school district. And that's where, um, from a company perspective, I know that um, we've had to work very closely with our sales team, with our, you know, government affairs team, um, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Because you mentioned this, you know, there's a huge infusion of cash that has gone through to um, E-rate eligible entities. So, you know, school districts, you know, libraries and colleges, universities, um, part of the issue is these folks aren't experts, you know, so yeah. helping them to know, you know, what's the, the best way to, you know, use those dollars and, and to buy the right things that, that their students will need and benefit from. I think that's where, you know, our sales teams come in handy to at least identify, you know, product offerings that put everything together, takes take some of the guesswork out of it for those school districts. But, but I think it comes in making sure that we, we have those relationships. And that's the thing I'm really proud about, you know, our, um, our global public sector team, the teams that are out, you know, working directly with the school districts, they've developed those relationships. So it's not just about selling, it's about how do we really get you to what you need? But, but I think it boils down to the relationships that you establish to make sure that they trust you and that you can help get them what they truly need. Right, right. Um, here's an off the cuff question. Um, how about international? I mean, we're, we're focused on US. Uh, does AT&T have any uh, international initiatives when it comes to this um, remote learning or mobile learning or whatever we're gonna call it? Yeah, so through our program, um, AT&T believes um, we have um, launched some international relationships um, in, you know, areas like, you know, London, and um, we, we've done a lot of work in, um, you know, India for not necessarily just with the distance learning, but just in general. Yeah. But I think those, um, and AT&T believes is a pretty cool program. Um, it's a program that started from, it was very grassroots. Um, it started in um, Chicago and it was, you know, workers for AT&T who just, they were on the ground and saw specific needs around um, workforce development. I mean, and, and, you know, to be very honest, there, there was a lot of, you know, violence that was happening there. And they knew yeah. that, you know, we needed to get to um, those organizations and agencies that were helping kids to, to find their way out of those types of situations. So the AT&T Believes program has really given AT&T a different view. Um, it, I, I, I describe it as it's, um, it's employee-led and company-supported. Um, but it really, you know, for me, I, I would go to, you know, Chicago and I would go with a very, you know, national, you know, vision of, oh, yeah, we can work with this organization, that organization, having no idea of, you know, really what the particulars were about neighborhoods and, you know, understanding the needs of the community. And it was really the employees who stepped up to say, no, let's look at these organizations. And we ended up supporting organizations that I probably would have never had vision into. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's programs like that, but from an international level, it's that same approach of, um, you know, I'm not there, but just really relying on employees to help us get to, um, get to the right organizations to help solve the issue. Yeah. Well, to get back to the States, um, do you have any sort of timeline when you see these funds and you see the funds of the FCC? I mean, 
it really seems to me that we're in a moment where there's great momentum. Uh, and also another phrase I keep hearing uh, is acceleration, that because of uh, this, the circumstances we've been in, a lot of things have been pushed ahead and, and are going forward faster than, than they had ever had before. Um, do you have a, a, a magic eight ball or crystal ball where, you know, what's, what's the best case scenario where you see your funds and your programs really digging into that? I mean, I see the, the, the raw number of, of 3 million students without access to the internet. I mean, how do we get that to um, zero and how long could it take? Yeah, so I, I'm very clear, like when I, when I talk with my team about this, when I talk to my boss about this, um, I'm very clear that it's gonna take a huge effort. Like, I don't know that any one organization is going to eliminate the digital divide. It's gonna, it's gonna take a lot of effort, a lot of teamwork, a lot of work. So, you know, I, I, I couldn't even guess as to when we would solve the issue, but I will tell you that we have jumped right in. Um, one of the programs that um, is part of our um, overall $2 billion announcement, and we're doing a program with Connected Nation. Um, and so no, understanding that getting students um, access to um, connectivity and a device. Um, so they, through this program, we are able to provide um, free internet access, free Wi-Fi devices, and other educational resources um, to about 35,000 um, of our most vulnerable students. And this includes rural and urban areas. Um, so we've identified through the help of Connected Nation um, more than 100 schools and organizations where we will focus on getting these devices and um, uh, broadband, uh, free broadband plans to um, students with disabilities, those who are homeless or in foster care, or who may have English as a second language to really um, help them because these are the students who are, are at greatest risk of being affected by the homework gap. So, um, and, and may fall you know, more likely into the learning loss category. So we funded that program late last year so we can really hit the ground running at the beginning of 2021 to make that happen. Um, another key piece of our AT&T Connected Learning Initiative includes the launch of a new educational platform um, with our uh, colleagues at Warner Media. Um, it includes digital learning and literacy tools. We will partner with organizations like Khan Academy and the Public Library Association. And then we're also going to pilot about 20 AT&T Connected Learning Centers across the country that will provide students with high-speed connectivity, resources for devices, these same digital learning tools. Um, they will be mentored um, by employees um, from local AT&T um, um, retail stores. Uh, so we have a plan in place. Th those particular uh, resources will be, will be available closer to the beginning of the 2021-2022 um, school year. So, um, I think the one piece that will be most effective to reach the most students are through um, our uh, Warner Media partnership. So we will develop a free educational service that's going to deliver high quality content and curriculum across multiple digital platforms. So you'll be able to log in on your laptop, on your smartphone, on a um, tablet, or even on a smart TV. Hmm. And it's going to include curated content from Warner Media's library. And Warner Media has never um, use their content in this way. So um, the platform will align that um, content along with um, common core curriculum, um, social emotional learning curriculum in a way where, so to give you an example, you know, say students are studying, you know, um, 
STEM, you know, science, centrifugal force, maybe we tie that with some scenes from the latest Wonder Woman movie and to put science to what you see in the movie, you know, or, you know, there, there may be uh, students studying, you know, issues of social justice where they may be able to take scenes from the movie Just Mercy um, to tie that to the work that they're doing in the classroom. So we just feel like it gives a different approach for um, the ways that students are learning. Um, we had a, a study that we did with Morning Consult. And one of the things that we learned is that students, you know, parents and teachers reported that students are bored. They don't feel like they're getting the help that they need. Um, but to have um, a resource where students would be able to see, you know, characters or movies or parts of documentaries, like that helps to bring that learning cycle, you know, bring it, you know, to, to give them uh, examples that they could really grasp onto the concept. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the, the, the pieces that we're most excited about. Um, the other piece is really around these connected learning centers. So the connected learning centers will be located um, across the country. Um, as I mentioned, we're going to start with, with 20 sites to pilot it, but really, you know, not every student is going to have access to um, a computer and working internet at home. No matter what we do, we, we, we won't get to every student, but we do know that a lot of students go to community centers in order to get their homework done, you know, to have some fun. Um, but for AT&T to be able to bring resources to these um, connected learning centers, I mean, I think that that helps to, um, to reach many more students. So in addition to providing, you know, computers and um, you know, uh, broadband access to those centers. We will also provide that Warner Media um, uh, educational platform that students would be able to um, access there um, as well. So we're, you know, we're working to to get things going. Um, it like like you said, it's going to take time, but I think we're already started. Um, I I would hope so. We've made a commitment over three years to get to. Um, at least 1 million students through these efforts. So, um, you know, I, I could only hope that, you know, we, we've far outpaced, you know, what we've set for ourselves as a goal, but I think it's definitely a start. And when you bring in, you know, many other um, organizations, companies that are doing similar work, I do hope that we're able to make a considerable dent to make sure that, you know, no student is um, suffering from the homework gap. We certainly seem to have, um a whole spectrum of programs that can meet the needs for, for everyone, including the learn, learning communities. I haven't uh, dove into those uh, too deeply, but that really seems like that could solve that last group of folks that you know are, are, are not gonna have that, that access at home. So, and I knew the hardest part of this conversation would be ending it uh, with so many different uh, aspects and so many uh, really, really uh, tremendous efforts on the part of AT&T. Uh, I thank you for your time and, and your insights, and uh, I'm going to be watching carefully, and I hope you can come back and have another conversation once you hit student one million. I would love to. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate the time. And thanks, everyone, for watching. I'm Kevin Hogan.